This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Bear Boat Alaska, a pure DIY hunting game with one of their 37-foot adventure yachts. You and five of your friends can hunt, fish, set crab pots, shrimp pots, and take DIY to the next level. Bear Boat Alaska is locally owned by a Ketchikan resident who lives here year-round. Call Larry at 907-617-4542 or go to bearboatalaska.com. That's B-A-R-E boatalaska.com and tell Larry you heard about it on this podcast. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Islander Calls and Creations. Bill and Sarah Yaki are lifelong residents of Prince of Wales Island and their unique deer calls are built for blacktail hunting specifications. Check out their Facebook page Islander Calls and Creations to order yours today. Here's my wife. We're going to talk the beginning of rut deer season. Hello. Hello. Uh, so we went out last weekend, and it's October, very beginning of October, and this sometimes is, or at least the first couple of weeks of this month, are kind of the dead period for a lot of hunters. What I've found in the last, like since I moved back in, in 2013 and started hunting, is that September, for some people, is the dead period. So you mm-hmm. hunt in August, you take September off, and you start getting back after it in October. Other people I talk to hunt through September, take mm-hmm. October off until the last week. And the last week is when things start to happen. And that's kind of what I've found. I've fa- Most of my success has been um, around Halloween. Mm-hmm. It's been really the day that I kind of circle. I've had the most success. And then uh, the first week of November has been good. And... Yeah, kind of, that's the focal point. But there's a lot of other people who also talk about uh, later in November. And we've seen some posts, and this seems about right. So I have some buddies on Prince of Wales talk about um, rut happening a little bit later over there. And I remember on Thanksgiving, multiple years going out on Thanksgiving morning and around that, that time during that week off uh, and getting bucks at that time. And they're still definitely responding to calls then. So um, I don't think it matters a whole lot. If you're talking last week of October or toward the end, bucks are around, and that's that's the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I've saw I've seen a couple people posting or talking about rubs already starting, and that tends to be kind of a, a pre-rut, maybe middle of the month is kind of a a kickoff type thing. But people, um, everybody, Josh. Saw a couple of fresh rubs, um, which is which is kind of interesting. And you have the 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 deer that you shot in August was just kind of raking. Um, he was hard horned, um, mm-hmm. so uh, that was yeah. That was well, interesting, but uh, yeah, you get some of these rut type rubs a little early. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have a question about that because. I was under the impression that they rub on trees when they're trying to get velvet off their antlers. Mm-hmm. So I I wouldn't be surprised to see new ruts now because a lot of deer have lost the velvet. Yeah, all the deer have lost their velvet by this point. It's like uh, mid-August is when they're pretty much all out of out of velvet. Yeah, so why is that surprising that? You would see rubs already. Well, you'd see them lower on the... They're kind of the mark in the territory. 
And you see them lower on the mountains because they're out of the alpine for the most part. I think some of the edges might still be good. The weather's still been kind of nice and holding on a little bit. Um, But they're kind of doing the territory mark, and you'll see a lot more of that aggressive sort of behavior. Uh, That place we went to, that rub gallery, where there was 30, 35 rubs. It was crazy. Mm. Every alder tree had just been absolutely torn up. And then you look at the base of the alder tree, and you see that it's really, really fresh. It just looks like these shavings, but... Um, depending on the moon, like they could be running nocturnal. And so you get there and, mm-hmm. and the things were just running around crazy in the, in the, in night at night. And then it's bed downtime. It can be hard to get up, sneak up on them. And that can be kind of frustrating, but mm-hmm. some of the areas are so like the access point is so obvious. So I think the deer get used to people coming in this certain road and walking this certain thing. And so if you can do something a little bit differently, I think that's kind of the key. Yeah. Um. We called one in last year, but we haven't had a lot of success together. That's the only rut success we've had up here. Because we've spent some time in uh, the last couple of years in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to get mule deer, which is a t- it's a totally different program. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to just compare the differences there. But then coming back here, we haven't had a whole lot of luck together. Yeah, well, I mean, last year was the first year that I really hunted the rut here at all. Um, <coughs> and... I don't know, I remember we kind of had some um, difficulties with calling, and I think we started out, we didn't even have any calls, because you gave your good call to a student or something, which yeah. I didn't understand why you would do that. Yeah, well, it's sometimes, you know, a good kid, and it was, uh, um, those drop shot calls are really awesome, and he'd talked about it before, and he's a hunter, and so I was like, ah, you know, he's been a good kid, so I'll, I'll give him the give him the call. Um, I, and that's, that's one of the things about so much traffic around here. If you're on the road system is there are people who call pretty much throughout like September or October. And at some point, maybe yeah, you're going to get a curious something to come in. And so if you have success, that's going to dictate what you do in the future. So if you happen mm-hmm. to call something in and you shoot something, you think, ah, oh, well, this is what this is. I'm going to run this program. I'm not going to wait until later on. I'm going to start calling now. And so if you have a ton of people that start calling mid-October, the curious ones are going to get shot. And then the other ones who come in and see a person that could, you know, they're expecting to see a doe that is helping a fawn or they're expecting to see the doe or they're, they're being attracted and they're coming into that and they, they see a human and they escape you do that a couple of times maybe and all of a sudden, Hey, I'm associating that call with, with danger. I remember over, uh, in one of those high traffic areas once, um, I heard someone calling, just wailing on the call, wailing on the call. And I saw a deer just absolutely running and it was pretty far away, but it was running in the opposite direction, just getting mm-hmm. out of Dodge. And that was really impressionable. And I think that's part of the reason why I, I went, a little bit more quiet and tried to really focus on hunt a very small territory, like do your one mile circuit, do it very well, do it very quietly and maybe not use the call a whole lot. Um, but then you kind of get in your own head too. It's like, well, people use the call because it works. 
So to not use the call seems stupid. So I've been back and forth on that. Yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know. I I question people who have success with calling. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends how you define success, too. If you're just looking to shoot an easy deer, then, yeah, a call is probably your best bet. Um, even now, it's like if you can call in a doe and, or a couple of does and they have a young buck with them, um, and get deer that way, um, and I think that's, a lot of people are satisfied with that, um, I mean, I would, I mean, I've shot one black-tailed deer in my life, so, if I called in a small buck that was just hanging out with some does, I'd shoot it too, but I think in terms of, like, people who really know what they're doing, um, if you're hunting an area that you know gets no pressure, there might be more strategy to the call, but I think really good hunters don't use the call so much. Yeah, I think they use it really effectively. And I think part of that too is when you're in a high crowded area, there's a lot of other factors. There are some people who just pull off the side of the road and just call as if it's like a magic wand. And so the people I learned the most from are people on Prince of Wales, but it's a totally different environment over there because mm-hmm. you can get to these nice pockets of areas where there's not a lot of people and you're going to call in potentially some nicer bucks. And so it's, and that's the, the difficult thing. And, you know, I've been up here for a while and I've, I've shot some deer, but you're, you're always learning and trying to figure stuff out and you have these perceptions and then they turn into be good realities. And then other times it's like, Oh, I, I was making this decision because I thought it was the right thing. It ended up being flawed logic. I was just happened to be lucky a couple of times. And it's that turning knowledge into wisdom. Knowledge is just this intellectual idea of these are all the things that I should do. It's during this time of year, it's mid October. So rut should be happening. I'm going to go out and I'm going to call, I'm going to sit on a muskeg and I'm going to call. Mm-hmm. But, how long should you be there and when do you move and which muskeg and do you call a lot? Do you call little? Like all those other things based on all the situations are, are what ends up being the important part. I have some, I know some people who just cover ground to get to the edge of the muskeg. So I don't really care how much noise they're making. They're hauling to get to the edge of the muskeg and then they're going to sit and call and they're going to call for a while. I've found a lot more deer um, slowly approaching the muskeg. So when I'm like 50 or so yards, because that's where you're going to be bedded down. So as you're getting 100 or 75, 50 yards from the, that's when you really start to slow down when you get, when you're approaching that muskeg in that transition area and just being slow and using, if there's a creek coming out, use that as cover for, for the sound. And then, um, as you're maybe approaching some, some low calling just to see if anything stands up or anything moves. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was out with, with Dave and Pader and I was, I was approaching this muskeg and I was probably about 75, yeah, probably 50 yards away and just going super, super slow. Hadn't even blown the call yet. And there was a buck 
underneath a tree that was bedded and it was looking right at me. I thought, oh my gosh, there it is. I didn't have a shot. So it stood up and it just kind of, it didn't, didn't jump. It didn't spook. It just kind of wasn't sure and just kind of relocated. Mm-hmm. So I gave a very uh, soft um, call and I waited like 10 minutes and 10 minutes for me is a long time. That's like three days. So I'm not always the most patient person. But uh, I waited about 10 minutes until I pursued, and I just walked slowly, slowly, slowly. And it had just bumped from its bed out into the edge of the muskeg, and we're just kind of hanging out there and, and shot it. And it was that really got me to approach the muskegs very, very slowly, work that area, and not just rush to the muskeg, sit in the middle of the muskeg, and just call and hope something comes in. So then the call was important to keep it from, you know, busting out or, or taking off. So, um, I mean, or maybe it would have done the same thing if you hadn't called, right? hundred percent. I mean, yeah. Um, but I, I mean, because I do wonder about calling. I, I think I like calling because it makes me feel like I'm doing something. Mm -hmm. Makes me feel like oh, I'm active in this process of this deer being here. When, I don't know, in reality, it's like if I just sat and was quiet, like our deer moving through this area anyways. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe a call might pull in a curious deer a little bit quicker, but... Um, when you think about a muskeg in particular, which we all like to hunt in rut, um, there's not a whole lot of feed in muskegs. There's really not a whole lot of reason for deer to be in muskegs other than their travel corridors. And so they're, they're moving through those areas. And I think they're moving through those areas regardless of whether we're calling or not. And so... Um, you know, we like those areas cause you can see more in them, you can get shots, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, they're oftentimes it's easier and quieter to move through them. And those edge areas are so dense. It's a lot more thick. You got a lot more of that good thick brush and cover. If you're mm-hmm. walking through the forest, it's just pretty open. And so those, the edge areas where there's a lot more bushes on the edge of the muskeg, that's a really, it, there's a lot of noise so they can sense predators. And if you're going around those, you always see the the game trails that go through, but also along the perimeter, there's usually a game trail too, and you can find the beds. And if you didn't know, if you're on the opposite side of the muskeg and you're looking across and you don't see anything, you get to the other side and then you're looking around, you find the bed and you see, oh man, there, I, there's no way I would have seen this thing if it was bedded or even standing up. And then there's that little outlet out the back, the little back door so they can escape. And you think, man, this is, they definitely have the advantage in those areas. But when they do end up walking out, then it's a good spot to to find them. Going back to the calling, though, and when to call, last year with the elk, when you were hearing elk at night bugling in Wyoming, and then I get down there, and I'm all excited to call. I've been practicing bugling and cow calling and everything, and everything had just, just went quiet. We didn't hear one bugle the week I was down there. It was absolutely crazy. But 
when I would call, it felt every time like we were calling too much. I really wanted to bugle, but we're like, I don't, I don't know if that's the thing. I think the bad bugling and the amount of people who have been bugling have turned elk off and they're not communicating. So it's probably not the call. And the, um, there was at least one elk that had responded, but was coming in quiet. And you're just like, dude, I don't even know. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to compare hunting down there and up here, I think. And, um, Depending on where you're hunting here, I think the hunting pressure can be just as high as it is down south in those general oak units for sure. And I think that um, deer are, I mean, even in unpressured areas here, if you call, that deer's not going to respond, right? They just. That's another you're, total different, yeah. You might hear footsteps coming in if it's not raining, but otherwise you're just looking for movement, right? I mean, you don't really get much of a signal. And so, I, I mean, I wonder about that too is, you know, last year we did do some calling and we didn't really call in many deer. And is that because they were coming in, but, you know, as they were coming in, we were unaware and we made a movement that they saw first yeah. and took off. Or, you know, it's it's not like elk where you, they call back and you get excited. Mm-hmm. Or that, you know, you can, a lot of times when an elk is coming in. I mean, they're quiet animals for sure, but it's a lot easier to hear an elk footstep in a dry forest than it is to hear yeah. a Sitka deer footstep when it's pouring rain. Yeah. You can't hear anything. It goes back to the one of those universal principles of hunting is just patience. Whether yeah. it be patience for the evening, wait till last light for a mule deer to pop out or a, or a, a white tail or being patient after you mm-hmm. elk call, same thing up here. And that's one of the things that I'm sure has gotten me way more times than once and just not being patient and it's call. And some people talk about calling for and waiting for 25 minutes. Some people call and wait for 45 minutes, mm-hmm. but even that, you know, you call how many times during you call during that 45 minutes. Some people it's, it's two sessions during that 45 minutes enough to kind of, you get the first one that locates them, gets their attention and the other one to, they can kind of hone in on the spot, but then how long do you wait? And are you going to waste most of your day hanging out at one spot um, and then not, you know, there's nothing there. But you have yeah. to believe that one is there. And so it's, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, patience is such a, such a huge one. I've seen quite a few deer just by being very quiet, going very slow. And at that very first light, being ready to go as soon mm-hmm. as it is breaking. But I've also been trying to hike to my spot or get to the spot I want to hunt while it's still dark. And I've bumped deer there too, which irritated me because mm-hmm. I didn't expect them to be so close to camp. Like there was one that was 50 yards from camp. This is during rut. And I like, this is, I want to get here and the thing is right here. So where I wanted to get was about 200 yards up this, um, kind of trail 
and the thing was just ended up being real close to it. Ended up seeing another one later and, and, and shooting it about noon, but we'd just posted up by this route and we'd been quiet for about an hour after yeah. uh, calling. We we're just going to go and I was actually taking a poop and uh, I saw the thing move. Just saw antlers. I'm like, oh, dude. So I had to, had to take care of that one. But yeah, was it coming into the call? Was it the one that we kind of bumped earlier on? Who knows? But confidence is also another thing. Patience, very important confidence too that you're running a program that you believe in i've been at my worst during rut when i'm running a program that i don't believe in anymore and i end up walking way too many miles i'm i'm frustrated hiking and i'm not running the program i did when i was calm at the beginning of the at beginning of rut when i'm confident when i'm running it and that's what happens yeah um yeah and, and going back to what you said about you know, bumping deer in the dark or hunting those time slots at sunrise and sunset. I think that's key, too. I mean, I think anytime you can camp out there and you can be out there those, you know, last and first 30 minutes of light, I think... Um, yeah, that's that's when the deer like to move, and so um, that's really when you have the biggest advantage is when deer are on the move, for sure. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash waypoint. That is mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Yeah. I haven't done a whole lot of the evening stuff. It seems like the program here is a lot more the morning, morning. Um, I've shot deer like on my way back. Actually, the first rut deer I shot, um, Abe and I had walked around on these muskegs for pretty much all day, just super, super quiet. And I was following his lead, and he's a big dude, but uh, this is one of my first like introductions to rut hunting. It was on Prince of Wales, and it was just, we drove to get to these kind of isolated muskegs, and we didn't walk, I was maybe a mile and a half loop, but it was just quiet. Super, super quiet, big area. Um, he called occasionally, 
not very much, but it was more about kind of covering some ground, looking around. Um, and then it was after we got back to the truck and we're driving back to, to town and there was still some shooting light and there was one just on the side of the road. Yeah. It was a little forky. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I definitely wonder like, cause during the Alpine season, it's super fun to go hike a mountain and camp out and glass for deer. And it's, it's, it's a lot different during rut because, I mean, personally, like, I do not enjoy camping during rut because the night, the dark is, like, twice as long. So, it's like you go out there and it gets dark at 5 o'clock and you're like, okay, well, now we'll sit in the rainy tent until it gets light again at 6.30 tomorrow morning. Like, you have such a much longer night. Usually it's raining, usually everything is wet, and you cannot find a good spot Mm -hmm. to pitch your tent. Like, you either have to pitch your tent in a muskeg, which is not ideal, or, like, in the forest, which is also not ideal. Yeah, if you're a road system, you can do, you know, in Prince Wales, they do a lot of those pullouts, the the pits, and then uh, over here, there's some some pits and some areas you can get to, and people take boats out. Do we ever do a... Boat camp during rut. We've done rut programs, but we didn't. Because uh, I never was up here during no. rut when we had the boat. Well, last year we had the boat and got uh, mm. got that buck, but it was just a day yeah, trip. Because you have true. enough time to kind of get up to some of these areas. Um, but uh, yeah, hot tent. With the hot tent, yeah. game changing hot tent. There, that's a. If you have a boat, it just makes it so much easier. When when I was out with Dave and Pader, we we're talking about that that trip. Mm-hmm. Um, the next weekend or maybe yeah i think it was the next weekend or maybe the weekend before i don't know one of those weekends that uh that we were out there um nick got one uh and it was just kind of head out first light on the boat but you can go to these little coves you anchor up it's so nice to be able to just get out there and it ends up being kind of a kind of a short day but if you hunt a good morning and then it gives you time to process and whatnot. That's the unfortunate thing about doing that. If it happens to be a Sunday, or even if it's a Saturday and you're not really prepared, or the or the wind's going to change, or the weather's going to change, you might not have good anchorage for overnight. You might have good anchorage for uh, the day, um, but overnight gets a little bit uh, a little bit sketchy. Wind change, drag anchor, and you have winter storms that are a lot worse, and you're just not prepared for that. So a lot of the evening thing, I think, is is nixed by hunters unless you have a, a longer weather window because we got to get this done in the morning and early afternoon because we can't stay another night. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of good little nooks around if you yeah. have a boat. But even then, you're getting more you're getting more traffic than you think. You go a couple hours out and a nice little cove, but someone else has found that too. And but I don't know, it still feels. You can feel more confident in some of those other areas. You know that it was probably walked the week before, but if you're that Saturday and you don't think anybody's walked it yet that weekend, it's you can feel pretty good about it and hunt it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got anything new for uh, gear-wise for rut this year? You got your bibs. Those would be nice. Yep. I have 
a new pair of bibs that are fully waterproof. Hopefully, I'm yeah. assuming. Um, it's so nice to be able to sit down in the Grundens bibs because it's rubber. It's not like a, it's not a coated uh, thing. Yeah. So you can sit down, and you're gonna get cold because it kind of seeps the the heat from you. But you're not gonna get wet. Every other thing, you sit on your pack or you sit on Gore-Tex, like you're, it's gonna soak through. So to be able to be, and you generate a lot more heat because it doesn't breathe as much. So like you generate heat, you might sweat a little bit, but man, it's nice to just be, if it evaporates a little bit, you can just be not wet from rain. And that's such a, yeah, such a different wet, wet from sweat versus wet from rain because the wet from rain means that it's leaking and it's just going to keep leaking and you're going to keep losing your heat. Yeah. And somehow I invariably either like forget to zip my rain pocket pants or there's like a gap between the pants and the jacket or i don't zip the raincoat it's like there's always water getting in somehow so that's why i finally broke down about the bibs which should cut all those problems out the bibs are nice you get that extra little chest warmth there Mm -hmm. and they're not that loud like the old the there's a heavy duty grunden's bib that is loud and cumbersome and, and just, just kind of swishes. But uh, I'm not sure if it's the Neptune or whatever. It's the thinner rain gear type. And, man, those things are awesome. Yeah. And I'm excited to – I got a pair of those last year. And it's nice to wear those in rut. Uh, and then just a lot of times wear boots. Just easier to mm-hmm. – to wear rain boots or rubber boots, the Grundens boots. And they have those little things you can, the elastic thing on the boot, you can tuck it in. So that makes it nice too. But yep. It's good to have a cloth available. You get uh, you get moisture, you get water. If your scope cover ends up coming open and then you close it, it gets wet and it's all foggy. That's an irritating thing. So having a cloth that you can keep dry uh, to keep that is key. Other things are they definitely bring binos too. There have definitely been some times where I've haven't seen anything, but just looking through the binos, you see the antlers, you see things a lot more clear than you would otherwise. If just using the naked eye, so binoculars are definitely things to to bring. What else? In terms of gear? Yeah, what else has been... uh, Well, I always get cold, so I like to bring hand warmers and just put them everywhere. The hand warmers are nice, yeah. Um, I put them in my shoes, put them... You put them in the shoes? Well, there, guys, they got the toe warmers. Do we buy any toe warmers, or we used to have the big box of hand warmers? We just have the hand warmers. Yeah. Buying a box of those on, just having them by the door is money. Yeah. Having them available. Um, I like having the jet boil, make some hot food. Yeah. Um. Yeah, some noodles. It's a nice, uh, nice pick-you-up snack. But... Yeah, anything you can do just to make it 
more comfortable to stay out longer. Um, and I think also, yeah, staying warm is because, like we talked about a lot of times, it's like you kind of just want to move. You want to pick a good area and just move through it as slowly as possible. And so you might generate a lot of heat getting to a spot. But then if you get cold, like, you don't want to start hiking faster to Mm -hmm. generate heat. Um, So it can be a lot of, like, just temperature management. Um, Yeah, that's the... Yeah, that's always the interesting one. Talking about how far you're going to hike to get there and how hot you're going to get going forward. It it does feel weird to hike past stuff that could be good deer territory, but some of the stuff you just think about, like there are a couple of spots that I don't hunt anymore just because when I first started hunting, I thought, oh, this is exactly what you look for. This is what we were hunting on Prince of Wales. But over here in Ketchikan, the amount of traffic that you get, I'm just not going to work. And I've set up some game cameras and I've seen absolutely nothing and seen a couple hunters. And then once you start looking more for high traffic areas, rubs from previous uh, rut times and sign, you think this is not a high use area by deer. It looks to the eye like a really nice musk egg and that's what you should hunt. But after a couple seasons, I look, this is not where I want to spend my time. It's better for me to maybe use this as an access point and get way further up to that next musk egg up on that bench, maybe a little bit higher in elevation. But all that stuff you just kind of learn, and, you know, areas are different. Not all musk eggs are the same. Um, but, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I kind of look back at some of those places where I posted up, and I thought, well, if this was on a, if this was in a deer-rich environment, this would be a great spot. But this is right next to the road. This is the easiest after-work loop that people can do to call it hunting. So yeah. I'm sure someone has probably got one there, which is why they, they hunt it, and it's, you know, a, a nice bargain buck potentially, but... Yeah, I don't know. And you still learn. I think that's a big thing, too, is that you, what's that quote? Knowing that you don't know is knowing, or what you don't know, you know, is knowing. Maybe. I get what you're getting at. That's yeah. not Who, the quote. Yeah, it's not the quote. It's, uh, but there's something. Yeah. I, uh, you. It's something about the true knowledge to know what we know and to know what we don't know. We, uh, we must have some knowledge. What? That sounds like a weird Copernicus. Yeah. To know what you know and know what you do not know. That is true knowledge. There you go. Confucius. Copernicus. Copernicus. I don't know. No, it's right here. Well, this is. It was the first. I. I this is why you don't settle for the first uh, Google result. Yeah. It was. Uh. It's this from Quora. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 cool to learn and and you feel like you get some stuff figured out and just being a lot more confident going there. So, I'm I'm excited for this year and I'm gonna start with this weekend and just see. Uh, what happens see what happens and yeah try to get some deer yeah you gotta get on the board gotta get on the board yeah so. got nothing like i said it's just so weird to have a mountain goat and a caribou so i'm just so 
I don't know, happy with the way things yeah. have happened so far that it's, it seems like it should be all gravy at this point. Well, yeah. How much is a guy like me supposed to expect? Do, um, because some of those early alpine hunts we went on, we saw some smaller bucks that you didn't want to shoot. And when we were out with Ryan, you guys saw some nice bucks that nobody shot. Yeah. Well, the first hunt in that first spot, that one was a little crab claw. And it was a small deer. And the other one was a small body deer, too. There were two does in that buck, and that buck looked like it was smaller than the does. Was it? Well, maybe it was us. I it was, don't know. It was pretty yeah. small. But yeah, that. You don't need to second guess it, I guess. Yeah, that's the thing that you start, you know, you start passing up deer. It's like, oh, you never pass up a deer, man. But at the same time, if you did shoot the first buck you see, and you or any buck that you ever see, then there's a chance that you're done with your tags in August, which is the point, right? You want to get your deer yeah. if it's about the meat. But at the same time, if you're getting four very small deer, with yeah. not a lot of meat, I yeah. mean, you could maybe be a little bit patient. You know, southeast Alaska, even though Prince of Wales has a lot more deer than than the, the Ketchikan area, I mean, you could get two really nice deer and, and a lot of like meat. So it ends much, up, yeah. So yeah, it's I don't know. It's a it's a personal thing. It's not yeah. necessarily indication of of trophy hunting, but you know, in hindsight, you look back and think, yeah, just getting one under the belt may have been good, but. It's just kind of small-bodied deer, so. Yeah, it's nice to think they might live another year and provide twice as much meat next year, yeah. but who knows? Yeah. Some of um, some of those really small bucks we saw, like tiny little spikes, they hung around by the road for far too long. Oh yeah, they're. I'm sure that they're. I'm sure they're done. I'm sure they're done. There was one. It was it was half of a pinky. Yeah. But that may have been. People talk about genetics. People also talk about it being that yearling that happened to grow the first starter of antlers. So it's not that necessarily that's an, a a buck that's a couple of years old that just has horrible genetics it could be that that thing is on its way to become something pretty good and started to grow a little bit in that first year but maybe yeah I who don't knows know. i mean you never know like unless yeah. you do kill it and you find out the age but or you let it live and you kill it later yeah then there's always that ah you should have let it go someone else is going to kill it yeah i don't know I know. I wish someone would do a study where they would actually call her deer here and see, like, what these deer actually do. I'm sure, just like down south, we get resident populations and we get migrating populations. Mm -hmm. Well, I had some bucks on the game camera in a muskeg that was 200 feet of elevation, and there were nice big bucks. Uh, in August that we're down in that muskeg. It's like, I mean, how much are they moving throughout the day? But are they going all the way up the mountain? Probably not. I mean, if they have food cover, whatnot, they don't have to migrate. You're talking about a, a, you know, pretty small Island, but that ecosystem provides everything they could need. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, 
maybe maybe later they end up going up a little bit. I don't know, but you see them everywhere. You know, people shoot really big bucks up top. You see really small bucks up top. People find really big bucks at, you know, pretty low musk eggs during August, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. it just makes it, I don't know, there's so much information and so many factors. And again, a lot of, a lot of different methods can work, which is encouraging and yeah. then frustrating if everybody else is shooting them doing anything. This, this person's calling and, and they're getting bucks and this person's not calling and they're getting a buck and this person's grunting and they're getting bucks and this person's uh doe bleat and they're getting bucks and then you're getting nothing. <laughs> That's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's fun, right? <laughs> it's a good way to spend October, like every weekend from here until the end of November, the end of the season here. Um gotta get out at least one day. Yeah. If not both days during the weekend. Then every day off, got to get out there in that Thanksgiving week, hunt every single day. If we have any tags left. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I like that optimism. Yeah. Oh, on that note. Will. Yeah. On that note, we'll call that uh, episode, I think it's 310 at this point. So, uh, should check out the com. Working on a new book. My wife wants me to call it Body Count. She wants the title of the book to be Body Count. Yep. Not really. I was thinking of fever. It was like buck fever, you know? And also, Don Bussey always talked about the fever and, like, hunting and the whole enrapturing nature of... Yeah. I just feel like it's a little bit soon to call something fever. Is it? We just had a global pandemic. Yeah. I'm just joking. At some point, we got to get over it. I don't know. Um... Well, I think I, I kind of hit the lottery with a miserable paradise. That's just a great title. And I think sometimes yeah. things can just be understated. Yeah. People buy stuff because of the title. I just feel like fever is a little bit cliche. Is it? I I agree. It's it's It is cliche. Kind of. Yeah. I need a subtitle that goes along with it that helps explain. But not yeah. too much. I don't know. Oh. I have some time to figure it out I'm in the editing process now. But uh, getting closer toward uh, the final stages. So that's good. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Um, if you go to uh, Spotify, Apple, whatnot, like, five-star review, all that stuff. Um, appreciate it. Thanks for listening.